Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, this is Scott Kelly. I'm a member of the Affirmative Action and OSCCP Compliance Practice Group at Ogletree. And joining me today is Lauren Hicks, another very experienced member of our practice group. And we thought it would be interesting to talk about OSCCP's latest action, or one of them at least, where um, they filed a notice today in the Federal Register about a broad Freedom of Information Act request or FOIA request that they've received. It's a bit different than what we've seen before in FOIA requests for EEO-1 reports. Lauren, tell us how it's a little different than what we've been seeing before. Typically, when we see a FOIA request, it's related to a specific contractor or set of contractors. This one is different because the investigative reporter requested five years worth of EEO-1 Type 2 reports for all seemingly all federal contractors who identify on their EEO-1 filing that they are a federal contractor. So the scope of this is astronomically larger and frankly, a little bit probably undefined even for OFCCP to figure out um, who could be at issue for disclosure. And it's a really broad universe, which explains why this matter has apparently been pending, according to the notice, since 2019. It's just a really broad request and a lot to get their hands around. And this is particularly at issue with the Type 2 reports. Do you want to get into what the Type 2 reporting is? Sure. So a Type 2 report is actually the consolidated EEO-1 report Companies that are single location um, are not going to have a consolidated report. We're talking about multi-location employers um, in the United States that have, you know, multiple locations across different, you know, it could be within the same cities and states or across all 50 states. Um, And the interesting thing to me is this investigative reporter who's from the Center for Investigative Reporting. His name's Will Evans. And I find it interesting that OFCCP actually linked to his bio, both in their frequently asked questions, which there's quite a number of those that they published on their website, as well as um, in the contractor portal where you can go in and actually file an exemption request. But we'll talk about that more in a minute. The Consolidated 2 report would really give anybody that got access to it um, the demographic information of your entire U.S.-based workforce um, broken out by the different EEO-1 categories. Um, So it's a a really smart request to, to try to understand what companies are, you know, frankly, looking like from a a demographic standpoint, not at just one location, but company-wide. And we should draw a really important distinction, I think. Um, Sometimes uh, the the language can be confusing that the government uses. So these are the type two reports, right? This is the demographic report, uh, Scott just explained, that relates uh, to the, the entity rolled up together. 
What it is not is component to. So those, those language, uh, that can be really confusing because the terms are very similar. But component to, we all probably remember from a few years ago where EEOC solicited compensation information and they called it the EEO1 component two report. So this is not the compensation component two report that we uh, were worried about a few years ago and had to file at the time. Yeah, this is a completely different report that you file normally. Com- most companies will file on an annual basis if they have multiple establishments. One of the things that I think companies need to be considering here is what could be used by the group that's requesting these EO1 reports. Um, you know, why is this something to be concerned about? And I think one of the biggest things that would worry me or be an issue to, to make sure that you're comfortable with is knowing that because it's several years of reports, the investigative reporting firm could really figure out what kind of trends could be um, going on within companies um, and kind of across industries if they wanted to aggregate the data in some way. So for an example, you might see that in tech that there has been an increase or a, a decrease in a certain population, whether it's women or people of color, or, you know, keep in mind that these EO1 reports go into the different race and ethnicity categories. So there could be some reporting out on that, which would be interesting. Scott, that's a really good point, though. And a lot of employers would be particularly sensitive to any downtrends with a particular racial group or females across their workforce. Uh, Right now, companies, of course, are looking to go in the opposite direction. They're really trying to promote their diversity and and show improvements. And so if someone had negative trending, I think that, you know, in general, we would we would expect that a company would not like that to be disclosed, as well as potentially those allocations between, um, you know, certain types of of positions. The other really interesting thing going on here is that, you know, this is asking for the EEO1 type two for 2016 through 2020. And we all know in 2020, we had a really seismic cultural shift following George Floyd. And uh, companies have really challenged themselves more on DEI uh, since that time than I think they were before. Because of that trending, a lot of employers have moved toward disclosing some of their diversity statistics, some of whom will expressly disclose on their website or in other documentation these very reports or the summary data that's contained within those reports. That brings up sort of a a different and interesting challenge, don't you think? I think so. I think I think that's a great point that the environment that we find ourselves in today is much different than the environment that would have been people or companies would have found themselves in when they were preparing and filing the 2016 to 2022. I mean, just think about all the pay disclosure laws that exist today that haven't existed for very long and in various states and other jurisdictions. There's also from the DEI efforts. Also, in a lot of, um, I, I mean, the SEC and, and other groups are pushing for this type of disclosure information. I think there was a recent call by another, um, the Agricultural Agency, um, about some disclosures. And, and you certainly have ESG reports where companies are, are making um, broad statements about 
their workforces. And, and you would just want to make sure that any of your efforts or any of the public information that you're sharing in those formats um, would not be called into further question by where you might have been if someone gets access to your 2016 through 2020 reports. I also think that we've gotten kind of right out the gate here, excited about talking about what this re request is about and what it pertains to. I think we should talk a little bit about what employers might want to consider as they learn about this request. Like, what does it mean to you as a federal contractor or subcontractor? First off, how do you even know what your EO1 reports might look like from 2016? I mean, it's August of 2022. Do you remember, do you have the same people that were filing these reports that are currently employed by you? Um, and, you know, I will give OSCCP a lot of credit. They, in their fre frequently asked questions, they give a link to the EO1 online filing system that you can go in and look at the company dashboards um, to look at the historical report. So that might give each company or federal contractor, subcontractor, some senses of what they may have looked like demographically in these reports. So they can make some decisions as to whether or not they should object under, you know, the exemption that's, that's provided under FOIA for objecting to releasing these materials. OSCCP has also set a deadline for the objection. Lauren, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what you think would make sense for folks to consider as it relates to meeting that deadline? So one thing that is really surprising to me, especially having previously worked in the federal government, is this is probably the simplest form I think I've ever seen come out of the government. If you go to the website... Um, and it has a bit of a clunky name. It's on the OFCCP website and it's called the Submitter's Response Form. But they made it incredibly quick and easy to fill out. You fill out basic contact information, name of the point of contact, title, phone number, those types of things. You'll provide the company's basic information. Uh, there's a question regarding do you have legal counsel, yes or no. And then it... it pre-populates for you the uh, FOIA exemption for relevant questions that they want you to answer, which I find to be really fascinating. I mean, they've put them here for you and you have to answer them in a yes or no format. Now, when I say yes or no, we should also highlight the fact that you don't have to use this form. You can uh, object via email or via snail mail, um, but the form is their preferred me method. And that makes sense. It's very easy to use and it certainly will be... Uh, easier for them to track. And they go through the, the basic questions that are relevant. Do you consider information from your EEO1 report to be a trade secret or commercial information? And then you have to choose a yes, no. Do you customarily keep the requested information private or closely held? If yes, please explain what steps have been taken to protect data contained in your reports and to whom it has been disclosed. Again, folks will want to really think there about have we disclosed it on our website and other reporting. The third question is, do you contend that the government provided an express or implied assurance of confidentiality? If yes, please explain. If you answered no to that question, you have an additional question. Uh, if you answered no, were there express or implied indications at the time the information was submitted that the government would publicly disclose the information? If yes, please explain. And again, all of these have a simple yes, no button. 
And five, do you believe that disclosure of this information could cause harm to an interest protected by Exemption 4, such as by causing genuine harm to your economic or business interests? If yes, please explain. And finally, there's sort of an other category. Are there other legal issues OFCCP should be aware of? If yes, please explain. I don't know the you know full universe of what could fall under number six, but you know one thing that comes to mind is we have um, if you think about businesses in the in the DoD space, um, they may have employees at sites or locations where they're not able to disclose that information or are potentially bound by other restrictions as far as revealing the content and size of particular workforces. So I would think potentially. Uh, contractors who are in the DOD or intelligence space might have an additional set of considerations that they would want to think about. But Scott, the form is just incredibly easy. And I, it's, it feels to me like the government is really trying to streamline it and almost, you know, help encourage objections to be filed. Well, it's, it's interesting you, you gleaned that from really how easy OFCCP seems to be making this for federal contractors. Um, there is a question that I found interesting on their um, FAQ page, basically saying, does OFCCP have a position on whether the requested data should be disclosed or withheld? Um, and the OFCCP um, says it will make a determination um, after they receive these written objections submitted by a contractor, but they do believe the information requested quote, may be protected from disclosure under FOIA Exemption 4. And that exemption, you know, protects disclosure of confidential commercial information. Um, and OSCCP says they've not yet determined whether the requested information is protected from disclosure under that exemption. So it, it seems to me, I don't want to use the word beg here, but it seems to me OSCCP is very much saying, hey, federal contractors, you should look at this and give us reasons that you don't think we should release this information under this FOIA request. I'll note that in, in previous experience, when clients of ours or employers would get these requests, they come directly to um, the company. Um, you've got 30 days to respond to that. That is not going to happen here. So if you are a federal contractor that filed an EO1 report, a consolidated report from 2016 through 2020, this is the only notice that you are going to get that you must file an objection. OFCCP has been very clear. The objection must be, it has to be written, whether that's through using their website mechanism or if you send them an email or snail mail and all of the, the email address and their actual physical address to send that information is on the FAQ page as well, but they've been very clear that if they do not get an objection, they will release the information under this FOIA request. So time is of the essence. I don't really think that there's any reason to wait um, after, you know, you have some reasonable time to make a decision if you should file an objection seeking an exemption from this disclosure. Do you disagree with that, Lauren? No, that's right. Companies have until September 19th. And OFCCP is very clear that the objection has to be received by the 19th. So, for example, if someone were so inclined to send it via you know, regular mail, uh, you would want to send it quite early. 
Um, but there's really no, no reason to wait. They've made it very simple to file. So if you are inclined to make that objection, think about doing so expeditiously um, because it, it is pretty simple and, and won't, shouldn't be too time consuming. The other thing, of course, is what happens if you file that objection? <laughs> What's next? Well, OSCCP, again, looking at their FAQs, says that if you do submit it in a, a written objection by the deadline, um, they will respond to confirm that they have received that written objection. There is no guarantee on the time frame that it will take the agency to go through all of these objections and to act on them or if they're going to handle them and large batches or how individualized the assessments will be, I would say, you know, it would be prudent for federal contractors to consider what the objections would be that would really pertain to their individual circumstances. Um, that, that to me would be an important thing as you're putting these objections together. Um, but I don't know that we have any real way of knowing a crystal ball or or any way to predict in the future when you might hear back um, on this request. But since it seems, at least from the notice that OSCCP has published, as well as the FAQs um, or the information on their website, that this request originally came in 2019, um, it, it seems that OSCCP is, is trying to do everything it needs to do to, to follow the law here and to follow the requirements that it has to in dealing with such a request. And, you know, to that point, Scott, about how much time is it going to take and what are they going to, to go through or, or how are they going to contemplate evaluating the responses? More of the information on the portal itself, again, signals to me that they are um, potentially, this could, could be a hint, that they're not looking for a really deep dive. And the reason I say that is because on that questionnaire, um, as I talked about before, it's got the yes, no buttons and they're sort of mandatory fields, right? They're requiring you to select yes or no, which should make it very easy for them to screen out what they believe are the appropriate um, you know, circumstances and selections that will allow for a proper exemption. If you scroll to the bottom of that portal, there is a section, a text box for additional information. I think the website indicates it can hold about 50,000 characters worth of information. But the additional information box is not mandatory. So they have clearly contemplated that someone could go through and file only the basic yes, no information without even adding additional context. Now, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that would be advisable, but it's a signal that the agency is contemplating making sort of quick and easy decisions to me that they're uh, forced selection on the, you know, the standard questions, and then they've not mandated anything in the text box. That's definitely something that I, I thought of as well. I guess there's nothing to say that if you answer in certain ways that OSCCP wouldn't be, you know, interested in reaching back out individually in those circumstances to try to get an employer to flesh out really something to support those yes, no statements. Um, but again, since OFCCP is taking this kind of unprecedented effort to, to handle this large, just humongous request in this format, instead of 
going individually to all the federal contractors that would be implicated, it seems a little unlikely that they would on the back end then try to go back individually to get specific answers. But one, I'm sure they're going to follow what they need to do to get the answer to figure out how to apply the exemption. The agency is quite a small agency. Uh, It's just not not made to handle these types of very large FOIA requests that other federal agencies do get more frequently. OFCCP, this is, you know, not sort of within the range of normal for them. And then the other thing that is interesting is in um, the release of, you know, what they put in the, the notice in the Federal Register, they identified that they believe this is a universe of approximately 15,000 employers, which I thought was interesting information. At first, you know, it was it was a bit unclear as to whether those 15,000 were from companies that had actually been or establishments that had actually been under OFCCP audit. They did in the FAQs clarify that is not the case. This does not just pertain to those companies that have had or company establishments that have had an OFCCP audit in 2016 to 2020. Instead, it applies to any company that filed a type two report where they identified as a federal contractor in one or more of those years. And so it was just interesting because we're not generally privy to those numbers. And it was interesting that they believe the universe to be about 15,000 employers, which frankly sounds a little low to me. That might beg another question of, you know, a known frustration of exactly who's filling out these reports correctly and OFCCP not necessarily having the best way to identify all the federal contractors and subcontractors that might be out there. Um, in their spring regulatory and other agendas, there there has been talk of amending or changing the regulations to require first-tier contractors, federal contractors, to identify all of those that they do business with as subcontractors so OFCCP can start to get a little bit better of an idea of who all falls within their jurisdiction. That's not even come to a notice of proposed rulemaking stage yet, but um, I, I too was a little um, surprised at the at the estimates of numbers um, that, that that they've put in all their documentation. So should we wrap up with a quick summary of where we are? Federal contracting friends, you will not receive any individualized notice. The Federal Register is the notice. So if you, if your company has filed a Type Two report from 2016 through 2020 one or more of those years where the company selected the box to identify itself as a federal contractor, uh, you are on the list. You will not be getting any other notice. This is the notice. And you have until September 19th at the absolute latest to act 30 days from the date of publication of of the formal notice, which came out today, August 19th. You can go and uh, if you wish to object you can go to OFCCP's submitter portal and file on a very simple and streamlined uh, form. You may also submit via other methods if you so choose, but the deadline is very important. And Scott, I just would ask that you give our listeners one last bit of context regarding demographic data, right? If, if folks don't work in demographic data like you do and I do day in and day out, it can be easy, I think, to think of it um, sort of in a way that isn't very contextual and maybe to minimize the seriousness of the data. And again, there are pros and cons to disclosing this data. There's not a right answer to this question, but 
don't you think it's fair to say that there's a lot someone could do with with your workforce data and the demographics of that data over a five-year period? Absolutely. I think you could see, I mean, depending upon whose hands it gets into, um, we all know data can be presented in several different ways. That's why we all employ the use of experts from time to time to try to arrive at different points using the same data. You could extrapolate potentially, oh, this is not a friendly place for a certain race or ethnicity, or they don't, they, they haven't improved their numbers as it relates to women in certain categories. Or, you know, one thing OSCCP seems to be very much talking about now is segregation. Um, in different job categories. And I think if you're looking at an EO1 report where you're seeing not a lot of people of color or women in some of the higher um, EO1 categories, that, that might be something that could fly in the face of some of these public statements or some efforts that you're trying to make, even not publicly, even in a private conversation where you're trying to recruit others to come into your organization. Um, just having all of this information at the fingertips of others that could, I hate to say it, but manipulate that data to really kind of support whatever positions they are trying to make could create issues for for all of our, our, our federal contractor um, friends here. So I definitely think it's worth taking some serious looks at what you would like to do as it relates to this FOIA request that's come in to OFCCP for your EO1 data. I would like to say that we've got an article um, that's posted on our website um, under our practice group um, about this very issue. And um, OFCCP has some helpful information on its FAQs. Um, and obviously our practice group is going to be staying on top of this and seeing what other developments might come in the next, I guess, 30 days. And we beyond. Will, and right? beyond. We don't know what legal challenges may come from this. We didn't hit on that today because we don't have time. But right. uh, we'll see what happens when, you know, in, inevitably uh, someone objects and then the investigative reporter might challenge if OFCCP agrees with that objection. So I would anticipate potentially a long tail on this issue. And uh, for now, our, you know, the best thing is just to, to think about if you need to act quickly, because there is a very limited time here. Absolutely. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.